Deuteronomy chapter 21. Last chapter, we looked at Deuteronomy 20, and that whole chapter is principles concerning warfare. So I think it's very interesting how the very next chapter, a lot of it has to deal with the law concerning unsolved murder. And we see here just the balance of our God, that he has a, the right way to go to war, and yet how he cares about every single human life. And we'll take a deep dive into all of this in a bit. But let's read verses 1 through 9. It says, If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. We can be reminded of Numbers 35. And in Numbers 35, verse 33 and 34, we see how special life and blood is to God. In Numbers 35, verse 33, God tells the nation of Israel, You shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel." The Christian faith has a high value on life. Not just for quote-unquote high-valued people or people that have a lot of money or have a lot of power, but from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, God sees all human beings as image bearers. And we should hold the same sanctity to human life that God has no matter the age, no matter in the womb or out of the womb, no matter what they can do for society or not, no matter their net worth or their economic or socioeconomic position within the community, human life is sacred to God. In Genesis 1.27, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. 
From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. It's repeated in Exodus 21 verse 12. He who strikes a man so he dies shall be put to death. Even animals that killed humans, they had to be put to death. And we see how much God values human life far more than any other creature. In Matthew, it speaks of human life being more valuable than any birds of the air, than any sparrows or eagles or whatever your favorite bird animal is. Even in Matthew 8, when Jesus delivers the demoniac we call legion, he sends the demons out of that man into a herd of pigs, and the whole herd of pigs end up dying. And Jesus, he's not trying to sign up for PETA and be with them and try to protect Pigs Lives Matters or anything like that. In 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, it says, Do you not know? That you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You see, human life is more valuable than any other life because it's holy. It possesses the very spirit that God has placed within us. And we're going to see here the links that God requires his people to go through for this dead body. And it's interesting, like we mentioned earlier, because chapter 20 was all about warfare. And yet here we see if one dead body is found in a field, all of a sudden, all of the elders, all of the judges, all of the important people in the city need to go out and investigate and do a ceremony in order to please the Lord God. In verse 3 through 6, we see this ceremony, which requires all the elders of the nearest cities to come and to bring out their measuring tape. Now, they didn't have measuring tape back then. They didn't have a measuring wheel. So I don't know if they did the one foot in front of the other technique or exactly how they did it. But each city would have to measure how far from the crime are the surrounding cities. Then once the city that is closest is found out, now the elders of that city were in charge to bring out of their own taxpayers a brand new heifer, a brand new cow that had never plowed nor sown. And they were to go into a valley with flowing water. And in that valley, they would break the neck of the heifer. First, an unworked heifer and an unworked fertile valley. I love how Joe Foge mentions the amount of untapped potential in a human life. We sense it whenever we hold a baby. That's why a baby passing away is really the, the most grievous thing, the toughest thing for us to deal with. Because there's so much potential in the life of a baby. Perhaps this is why God requires a heifer that is filled with potential and a valley that would have been so fertile, tons of unmet potential for this ceremony. I love how in Scripture, whenever mankind, whenever God's people are in a huge difficulty, do you know what God sends? A baby. His people are in slavery, and what does he send? Baby Moses. His people, we are in slavery to our sins. And what does he send? Little baby Jesus. 
how he grows. We've got to keep that in mind. We've got to know that. But he sends this little innocent life filled with so much potential. The Levites then treat this heifer and the death of this heifer differently than any of the other normal sacrifices. They simply break the neck of the cow or the ox. They wash their hands over it. And that's the ceremony. There's no parting out of the animal, no skinning, no building a fire, no building an altar, no collecting the blood and shedding the blood upon the altar. And this is where we see this seems to be much more a substitute for execution than a sacrifice. We see that there is guilt and pollution whenever blood is spilled, like we read in Numbers 33. And here God would require the death of another in order to appease or to be an atonement for the death of this human being. They would go on and wash their hands. In Psalm 26 verse 6, it says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. And this was the ancient sign for being innocent. You would wash your hands and you say, look, I, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Yet just because someone goes through a ceremony doesn't automatically mean that they're innocent. We can consider in Matthew 27 how Pontius Pilate, because he was too fearful of the crowds and of the people, and because he didn't listen to the advice of his wife, right? what does he do? He washes his hands before the multitude and he declares, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Yet Pontius Pilate was not innocent. These elders and priests needed to make sure they did their due diligence to investigate what happened, try to find the murderer, and then if they couldn't, then they needed to use this unused heifer and this unused fertile land to commit this ceremony to the Lord. Then in verse 7 through 9, they were to wash their hands over the heifer and then say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord." For your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. The reason for this ceremony and the death of the heifer was to provide atonement for the guilt and pollution of shed blood on the new land of Israel. That word atonement, it is to do something to make up for a wrong that has been done. And Israel needed to obey the Lord and what God had prescribed to atone, to do something to make up for the wrong is to take this innocent heifer in this innocent land. Robert Jameson, he says, the whole of this ceremony was calculated to make a deep impression on the Jewish people as well as on the oriental mindset. This would stimulate the activity of the magistrates in the discharge of their official duties to lead to the discovery of the criminal and to the repression of crime. All over scripture, we see the truth that laws and punishment discourage sin and crime. 
We live in a day and age where the smart people say that's not the truth, but we see that that's not reality. Today, so many of our cities in America, because there's no true punishment for crime, crime runs rampant. You can go on YouTube or Instagram, any social media, and you'll see people just walking into stores stealing an exact amount because they know they can't be punished for it. Bob Udley, he says, the ritual was seen as purging the effects of corporate sin. These unsolved murders from the whole community. Sin, even unintentional corporate sin, affects the blessings of Yahweh and even brings collective wrath. Believer, don't buy into the lies that sin only affects one person. That just because your neighbor is committing sin, it doesn't affect you. Just because your neighbor's kids are committing sins, it doesn't affect their sins and their lifestyle and their habits. We affect one another with our lifestyles, especially those who are close to us. And societies crumble when evil goes unpunished. And as we're seeing within our own nation, evil is going unpunished. And our society, it is crumbling. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 through 13. Notice what Solomon says. The, many call him the wisest man who ever lived. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 through 13, he says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. When the sentence against evil work is not executed speedily, the sons of men fully set themselves to do evil. Proverbs 20, verse 26 says, A wise king sips out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. Our God is a God of law and order and of justice and of righteousness to the point that we can think of our own lives and our own sins, how our own sins have polluted our lives and everyone around us. Our sin, our evil, our disobedience to God does not happen in a vacuum. It will affect the people that we love, our neighbors, our city, and the land we live in, and the people around us. Sin cannot go unpunished. And we have to realize this for our own lives. We see it time and time and time again. Someone sins, and it affects everyone that loves them. It hurts the people near them. And we need to realize that the devil, his whole goal in this world is to steal and to kill and to destroy. It not only affects us, it affects everyone around us. And yet we see God has provided a way to, to keep his word, 
a way to fulfill his judgment and a way to fulfill his righteousness and yet display his mercy and his grace for our atonement. God the Father has provided a way to make up for all of our wrongs. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And just as this innocent young heifer had to be put to death to atone for the death of this person, this stranger... So Jesus, a 33-year-old man, an innocent man, the innocent son of God, was put to death to atone for our sins. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Our God, He does not bend the law. He does not just get rid of consequences. But instead, for our sins, He took the consequences upon Himself, upon His own Son, so that we could be saved through Him. We go back to Deuteronomy 21. Now in this next section, a little bit strange for us, and maybe you'll get some marital advice here. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 through 14, he says, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free and you shall certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. There is the saying, to the victor goes the spoils. And in war, ancient war, and even modern day war, there are atrocities that happen. Even what happened in Israel, right, 119 days ago, we saw the atrocities that happen when men are at war. They take beautiful women and they rape them, they make them their sex slaves, or they force them into marriage. But here God provides a process to protect the weak and vulnerable. Just as they were to go to war differently than any other nation in chapter 20. Just as they were to take every single human life as something important and something that has value earlier on. Even here 
Those that they defeat in war, they cannot just do whatever their flesh and carnal nature desired. They were to go to war differently and deal with the people they defeated differently than the world around them. The man had to take the woman home and first hit the reset button on her life. She would change her clothing, shave her head, and cut her nails. This would show that she's going through a renewal process. Her old culture, she was, had to be willing to let go of in order to marry this man. She was also to put on clothes of mourning and take a month to mourn the fact that her family and her city has been destroyed, all while living in the house of this man, all while he's paying for her groceries, paying for her bills, paying for her cell phone, paying for everything for a whole month. And then after seeing her with a shaved head, seeing her with clothes of funeral and mourning clothes, then he had to make the decision, do I still want to marry this woman or not? Right? Perhaps God had this so that all the man-made beauty would be taken from her and now the man could truly decide, do I still want to marry this woman? Any marriage that is solely based on lust will burn out. Any marriage based on lust, any marriage that's based on the eye candy of what you see, it will burn out. So here God gives a very practical, live with him for a month and see if you still want to marry him or not. Without any of the pleasures of sex, without any of the pluses of marriage, then the man could make the decision to marry her or not. And when we look at this within our own world, we think this is crazy. But when you compare this to what goes on in war, you see the mercy of God upon the innocent and upon those that are weak and vulnerable. Because if he had no delight in her at that point, if all he loved about her was her hair and her nails maybe or her fancy clothes, he needed to set her free. He, God values human life. So there's no room for sex slavery. There's no room for selling this woman or using her as a bargaining piece or a piece of meat. He needed to simply set her free in the land of Israel. How our God values life and we should value life more than anyone around us. Now verse 15 through 17, it says, If a man has two wives, one loved and another unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now I'm hoping there's no real life application here for any of us here. Having two wives is not wise. Having two wives is not biblical. You see right away, you're going to have a favorite. God does not approve of polygamy anywhere in Scripture, nor does God approve of divorce. But he knew mankind would do it, even the people he loves and cares about. 
So now God provides protection for those who would be harmed by the disobedience of the one man and one woman families. That's what God created. One husband and one wife. He just created Adam and Eve only. He didn't create Adam and Steve. He didn't create Adam and Eve and Elena and so and so and a bunch of girls for him to pick like the bachelor. No. One man and one woman. That's what God created. And now because we are going to sin and because we do terrible things, God is protecting the most innocent. God is protecting the most innocent and the most vulnerable. God is saying, just because you love one wife more than the other doesn't mean that now you can rip off the blessing from the firstborn son. Just because the wife that you really love is putting pressure on you doesn't mean that you can take the status of the firstborn from this son. David Guzik, on a double portion of all that he has, he says this was the right of the firstborn son in ancient Israel. The firstborn son was to receive twice the inheritance as any other son. For example, if there were three sons, the inheritance would be divided into four parts. The firstborn son receiving two, and then the other two sons receiving their parts. So man, even though they were disobedient to God in polygamy, still needed to be obedient in God's commands of giving that firstborn son a double portion. And also the firstborn son is the one that carries the family lineage. As we read Jesus' family lineage, we see firstborn son and then firstborn son and then firstborn son. Now verse 18 to 21 we see a great reason to come to the parenting conference next weekend. Because it says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who when they have chastened them will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city. To the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now some commentators state that this never happened, that this was a huge deterrent for rebellious and disobedient sons and daughters. Yet what we see here is just how much God values obedience. And we as parents, the reason we should demand and expect obedience from our kids is not just for our sake, but for the sake of our kids with their heavenly father. If we're not teaching our kids that God the Father demands obedience and any type of disobedience is going to lead to punishment and pain, we are doing our sons and daughters a great disservice. The other thing we see here is that when we allow sons and daughters to become stubborn and rebellious, even though we chasten them, it will sooner or later affect the whole entire city. In, in America today, how often 
Sadly, we see men go out and kill many people out on a killing spree. And yet they interview the parents and they say, yeah, I know he was messed up in the head. I put the gun in a locker, but I gave him the key. You did what? Even today, right, the mom is being put on trial, the, the father is being put on trial. We see this. And if we're honest, in Miami, with a bunch of Hispanics here, can we be honest? Are we always biblical when it comes to how we treat our sons and daughters? Those are our little idols, right? Little Harvey, no, nah, he's not rebellious. He just he hasn't had his chocolate milk yet, that's why. No, they're, they're not rebellious. They're not stubborn. They just haven't had their nap yet. That's all. And he, what we see here is that this isn't speaking of your four-year-old. Don't get any crazy ideas here. This isn't speaking of your older child because we see that he mentions he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. So now we're talking about a teenager or a young adult. We see that the parents have chastened them and yet they're still not listening. Parents, I hope we see here, there's no excuse if you have an older teen or if you have a young adult living in your home and living in unrepentant sin that you put your hands up and you say, there's nothing I can do about it. We see here that God holds the parents to come out and cry out to the elders with the truth and the reality of where their sons and daughters are at. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, because maybe we think, man, this is, such, this is so bad, this is so evil. Why did I come here on a Wednesday night? I'm never coming back here again. What is Sandy going to teach at that parenting conference? This is crazy. 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Maybe you would see it a bigger deal if you came home and your son or daughter was practicing santeria in the middle of your living room and all the chickens from the neighborhood disappeared and they're all in your backyard. Would that freak you out? Would that cause you to now call the pastors and say, I don't know what's happening. My kid has gone crazy into voodoo and santeria. I need help. Where if your son or daughter is constantly stubborn and rebellious, you should be willing to be biblical and call it for what it is. We see here the parents would bring this son or daughter out after they chastened them because what the scriptures say, God as a loving father, he chastens his sons and daughters. If we're not chastening our kids, biblically, we are not loving them. That's what the Bible clearly states. We need to chasten them, and then they ought to heed us. And then if not, and they're in this older state, we should bring them out to the elders. Now, this is Old Testament. There's no capital punishment for a rebellious son or daughter. But we should still seek out help with the elders within our churches. And say, hey, I need some help here. That's why youth group is so important. Young adults ministry is so important because there's going to be a day when your kids don't want to listen to you. I hope you remember that. I'm still young enough to remember there was a day and age where I didn't want to listen to anything that my parents had to tell me. Thank God there were other godly adults that I looked up to that were telling me the same biblical things my parents were telling me. But yet, Godly parents, godly people, they don't see youth group or young adults ministry as something that's so important. They give it up to the kid. Hey, do you want to go to youth? 
He doesn't like youth group. What should I do? Hey, do you want to go to school? He doesn't like school. What should I do? He doesn't like going to the doctor. What should I do? He only likes gummy bears and Mountain Dew. What should I do? That's the only thing this kid eats. The things that we see that are important and healthy for our sons and daughters, we should. We should put our foot down and say, as for me and my house, this is what we're going to do. Matthew Poole, he says, stoning was the punishment appointed for blasphemers and idolaters, which if it seems severe, it is to be considered that parents are in God's stead and entrusted in good measure with his authority over their children. And families are the matter and the foundation of a church and a commonwealth. And they who are naughty members and rebellious children in them do commonly prove the bane and the plague of these. And therefore no wonder if they are nipped at the bud. Again, how many of our cities are being run and overrun by gangs and young men that were rebellious, that their parents never stood up to them, and now they're rebellious to police officers, they're rebellious to society, they're rebellious to laws and regulations, and then there's several people dead afterwards. God, he has it here, and this isn't America. This is Israel. They were starting on a clean slate. So God starts off with a clean slate saying, we are going to be a nation of law and order. Finally, verse 22 and 23, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged of God. This is after a man is put to death. This isn't speaking of public hanging. And interesting enough, crucifixion hasn't been invented yet. Men and bodies would be put up on display upon a tree after being put to death for their crimes as a deterrent to other would-be criminals. And yet here, once again, we see the grace and the justice of God perfectly balanced. Here God says that you need laws and you need punishments, and laws and punishments will be a deterrent for sin and crime. However, Israel was not to cross the line into the mockery of a dead body. Because every criminal still has a mom and a dad. Every criminal still has a family that loved them, a family that's brokenhearted for them. So here we see the great balance of our God, a deterrent for other criminals, yet knowing there are people who are hurting and there should still be a sanctity to life. Adam Clark, he says, it is worthy of remark that in the Affliction of punishment prescribed by the Mosaic law, we ever find that mercy walks hand in hand with judgment. Mercy with judgment. We can turn to Galatians chapter 3, and there are many times we read through the Old Testament, and we're saying, what in the world is going on here? What in the world is going on here? And yet, once you read the whole book over, we see how it all goes Hand in hand. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we see God's great love and yet God's great righteousness. God's great judgment. 
Because in Galatians 3.13 it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and here Paul is referencing Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became accursed for me. Jesus became accursed of God for you. We know that all the disciples except John, they left him. He's accursed of God. The religious leaders, they left him. They lied. We read earlier how it was the religious leaders, the Levites, that needed to come and investigate the crime, investigate the dead body. And yet the religious leaders and the Romans, they lie and they make up a bunch of fake rules and bad courtrooms to punish an innocent man. Jesus became accursed for us. So not only his own disciples, not only the religious leaders that were supposed to be looking for him, but what does he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because our God is so just and so righteous, he could not look upon his own son, even though he was being obedient, because he became our sin. He became sin for us. What manner of love is this? What manner of love is this? That Jesus would be willing to go through all this, accursed by his friends, accursed by the religious leaders, accursed by the government, accursed by his own father, that we might be sons and daughters of his glory, that we might be adopted. Man, let us realize how great of a love God has for us and Jesus Christ has for each and every one of us. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what a great segue for us into communion. And so many of these verses we already mentioned. How Jesus mentions that his blood is the blood of atonement for us. God made up for our great wrong with the blood of Jesus Christ. We can't do anything else. It's not through our church attendance or how many verses we've memorized. It's not by how good we are or what we do. Our atonement is only in and through faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, paid in full. The work is already done. There's nothing we can add to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as that innocent heifer was put to death to atone for the blood that was shed in Israel... So Jesus was put to death to atone for our sins. 
Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Have we taken time to consider Christ's death for us? It, it, it sobers us up so quickly when our view of our life is skewed. When we think, woe is me, poor little me. Take a step back and consider Christ's death on the cross. When we look at our own sins and we say, my sin is not that bad, not that big of a deal. Look at the cross. Look at what our little sins that are not that big of a deal, look what they caused. He was put to death, beaten and broken, his blood being spilled, his face not looking like a human anymore because of my sin. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Then in verse 27, it warns us, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Perhaps tonight we are that rebellious child. Perhaps us tonight, we are that stubborn child. We are that glutton and that drunkard and we're not listening to the chastening of the Lord. May we repent today. May we repent as we see his death, as we see his sacrifice, as we see his blood, as we see him becoming our sin for us. May we repent tonight before we take communion so we can take it with a clear conscience. And that's the grace of the Lord. He says, hey, just come and repent and that's it. I'll separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. I'll take all your sins and cast them into the depths of the sea of forgiveness. But we need to repent. It all begins there. Without repentance, there's no remission of sin. Without repentance, there's no coming and being right with the Lord God. He paid it all with the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid it all with the death of Jesus Christ. So let's follow what he prescribes for repentance. So hey, in a moment, the worship team can come on up. We'll dim the lights down a bit for worship. And the pastors, they'll be handing out the communion elements. You worship, take some time to pray. And tonight we're going to take communion whenever you see fit. Whenever you, your, your family, whoever you're with, maybe you're alone here tonight, take some time to pray. Take some time to consider his death, his sacrifice, his love for us. And then when you're ready, you could take of the bread and then you could drink of the cup. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for your word and Jesus, how you're over all of it, Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about you. But Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come upon this place. That you'd fill us to overflowing with your spirit, God. Help us, Lord. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked who can know it, Lord? It is only by the Spirit, it is only by your Word that we can see truly where we are at this evening, Lord. And if any of us are far from you, Lord, if any of us are rebellious or stubborn, Lord, please forgive us tonight, Lord. Help us, help us to ask 
for that forgiveness, Lord. Lord, if any of us are downtrodden, if any of us are exhausted and tired, if any of us are lonely, I pray that we'd be reminded of how great of a love you have for us, Lord. How you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, wherever we're at, Holy Spirit, I pray you give us that clarity of mind, that clarity of heart, so that we can leave here tonight at peace with you, Lord. Leave here tonight in a good conscience. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, and your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.